Listener supported. WNYC Studios. John Hawks, he was off the team. And it all seemed so sudden and ludicrous. After all, Hawks was born to play on the US national team. He came from a place that calls itself Soccer Town USA, Kearney, New Jersey. Kearney's a factory town, 35 minutes outside New York City. And when John Hawks was growing up, it was a town full of the kids and grandkids of Scottish and Irish immigrants. People who arrived in the late 1800s to work in the thread and linoleum mills. Only one town in the United States has developed three U.S. national team players. They also have some pretty good fish and chips. They brought their passion for soccer with them and handed it on down from generation to generation and on to John Hawks. We just constantly played. We got kicked off the baseball fields. We were kicked off the American football fields. We got the ball stolen by the police and then had to have our dads go down and get the ball back again so we could play again that night. You know, your mom yelling out the windows in, in, the, uh, in the apartment buildings, just yelling for dinner and you're still not home because you're playing for four or five hours after school. Playing soccer in the street. In the streets. When he wasn't playing soccer or working at the local fish and chip shop, John Hawks was watching the game. He'd head to the Scots American Club along with pretty much everyone he knew. You know, we would catch an old game on a tape or something from Liverpool's old 80s team. How did the World Cup, did the World Cup loom large in your life as a kid? It, it, it was something that was unattainable. It was unreachable. It was stationed some island in the middle of this sea that we could never even imagine of jumping on a ship and, and getting out there. All we were were fans. We were, we were the spectators. We were never going to be the players that would ever represent. I remember joking around and clicking my heels three times together like the Wizard of Oz, thinking, can I go there? <laughs> can we get to the World Cup? At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is American Fiasco, a show where the reality never lives up to the dream. I'm Roger Bennett. Now back to John Hawks. Maybe it was the clicks of the heels, or the years of ignoring his mother and playing soccer non-stop. Either way, Hawks was recruited by the University of Virginia. But come senior year, when US soccer asked him to quit college and join the national team full-time, he willingly did so. In 1990, then 23-year-old Harks helped the national team qualify for the World Cup for the first time in four long decades. That same year, Harks impressed the scouts at one of the oldest pro teams in England, Sheffield Wednesday. They signed him, and he packed up, an American moving to a gritty old steel town in England's North Midlands. The initiation wasn't easy. 
you always knew that they were looking at you and going, Phew, Yank, you're not going to get here. What are you doing here? You know, it's an American. What's he doing here? You know, them laughing at me, my style of dress, you know, dress sense, not very good. Um, typical American, you know, the big white, like tennis shoes and all that, the Reeboks, I think we were wearing and old sweats. I mean, just very casual. And here we are up against players that are coming in and all the your, your Gucci and the Versace stuff. And I'm thinking, what's happening here? Is it a fashion show or are we playing soccer? On the field, however, it was a different story. You stood out immediately. Can we just play this goal? I know you know it incredibly well. It is a beauty. Oh, the tapping against Shelly? Yeah, the one from close range. This was not a tap-in at close range. Far from it. So I sat with Hawks, made him relive the goal with me on YouTube, and we savoured it. Worthington switches it to Hawks on the right. That's a good effort. Oh, what a tremendous goal by John Hawks! His first ever in English football, and one he'll remember for the rest of his days. Hawks blasted the ball from 35 yards out, way downtown, as you'd say in America, is a distance. To be honest, few players would have even had the audacity to think about shooting, never mind pull it off. And Hawks fired that cannonball, plus one of England's best goalkeepers of all time, a legend named Peter Shilton. The American World Cup player came forward and just decided to have a crack. And what a crack it was. There's a comment under the goal on YouTube, which I love. Someone wrote, the goal is a seven. The mullet is a 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, that goal, to me, um, that f- for me personally, that was my busting down the door, opening up opportunities. That was my first real kind of chance to say, hey, Americans can do it. And that, that, it felt good. It felt good. I remember and then thinking to myself, all right, I've got to defend right away now. Don't get caught up in your emotions. You're an American. You're trying to break in here. Get back to business. As Han Solo once said to Luke Skywalker, great kid, don't get cocky. In England, John also learned another important life lesson, how top-flight professional football is an unforgiving and sentimental culture. Your girlfriend dumped you the night before a big match. Suck it up. Your teammates mock your accent in the locker room and hurt your little feelings. It's irrelevant. Because when you're on the field, how you perform is everything. All that matters is the game. John Hawk survived. He thrived and was transformed by English football over six years, a time in which he pioneered a litany of firsts. Hawks was the first American to play in the elite English Premier League, the first American to score England's goal of the season. And perhaps most impressively of all, the first soccer player in America to rename one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful. Yeah, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was, I kept hanging up on them every time they called. <laughs> I did. I did. I hung up on them. Yeah, I thought it was one of my friends pranking me from Carney. Wherever he is, Hawks practices one inflexible beauty ritual. Mm. Do you remember when it was? It was oil of Olay, which <laughs> I see you use as well, Roger. You look fantastic today. <laughs> By the time he returned to the US in 1996 to play for the shiny new Major League Soccer, John Hawks had become a legit international star. John Hawks was scrappy, uh, aggressive, 
self-centered as a good athlete has to be, he was also hardened by having played in a, a tough league. That's George Vesey, sports columnist for the New York Times. He had that. He even had the accent. He picked up. Have you actually ever been to Wembley? No, I haven't. Um, just seen it on the telly a couple of times, watched videos back home in the States when we watched the games and that, but never actually put foot in there. There's Harksey sounding like he's played in the cold and the grim and the, and the nastiness and the, the taciturn mentality of, of uh, old-fashioned English football, and there he is coming back to the States. So he had this huge glowing neon sign above him, I've played over there, I've been to the fair, I've seen the bear, you know, kind of thing. And as if the glowing sign above his head wasn't enough, John Harks had just been named captain for life by national team manager Steve Sampson. It's spring 1998, and the U.S. national soccer team was on a high. They'd escaped Mexico intact, had an improbable win against mighty Brazil, and finally, finally, they qualified for the World Cup. This was a team that felt primed for glory, under the leadership of captain John Hawks. I mean, he had everything, right? That's Jim Frostlid, the team's press officer. I mean, he's, he's funny. He was confident. He would get into people when he needed to get into people. Oh, talk about a personality and a character. And that's Alexi Lalas. This team was made up of, uh, of a lot of strange dudes, in, in a wo- wonderfully strange dudes. And he took, he took his role um, as a captain and as a member of the team really seriously, and, and, I, and I respected that. And for Eric Winalda, he was my best friend. Winalda and Hawks have been playing on the national team together since 1990. Over eight years, you get to know someone pretty well. Winalda could be intense and emotional. Hawks liked to take the piss out of him. He called him Bobby Big Pants, a nickname that stuck. Hawks and Winalda were partners in locker room comedy. They did skits together on the team bus, reeling off scene after scene from Dumb and Dumber or Ace Ventura Pet Detective. To be able to take the pressure off of your teammates through laughter. And Hawks was very good at that. But... There was one person who didn't appreciate goofing off during training, and that was Steve Sampson. As a manager, Steve couldn't handle the, that component of it, and he didn't understand it. And this, unfortunately, is what we see a lot when you have a manager who has never been in a locker room that matters with boots on. Because he was never a player. Right. At some point, at some point, I think Steve didn't know how to handle it, felt that it was disrespectful in some way, and tried to eliminate it. He had one philosophy, and I, you know, from my experience and being with the group as a, as a leader, you know, our vision was a little bit different. And, you know, um, you know, look what we've done in 90, 94, 95, maybe take a step back and not overcoach, not be so controlling, but to uh, continue to let us express ourselves. Because all the work that we had done building up to that, it was going to culminate in 1998. Like we were going to push ourselves on and, and we were going to do some great things here. That was the plan. Well, it was the plan, before Steve Sampson held a media conference call. On April 14th, 1998, the coach announced that John Hawks, the American who conquered English football, the man who became arguably the centrepiece of American soccer, that John Hawks, he was off the team. The announcement shot reporters on the call. It caught them cold, as it did for the players and American fans across the nation. The captain for life was suddenly persona non grata. Here's how John Hawks remembers it. He told me that uh, 
we'll be going on this trip to Austria and you won't be part of it. What, what did you say to him, John? I just, I was in shock. I mean, I just didn't know what to say, to be fair. I was just like, wow, um, I don't understand. Hawks wasn't the only one who didn't understand. At the time, the reasons were never clearly detailed. Alexi Lalas. There was confusion. There was surprise. So this just, to you, just came out of nowhere. Yeah. Hawksy wasn't going to be on the team. And that's, there wasn't really much detail to it. When you see a veteran like Harksy get dropped, now you think to yourself, okay, am I next? Marcella Balboa. Now you're playing, you step on the field and you play nervous because you're not sure if you're going to have a job next week, if you're going to be on the 98 World Cup. And at that time, no one wanted to ask Samson why. The worst thing you can do is piss off the coach and start asking the wrong questions. And all of a sudden, you're the next head off the team. When you found out this news, what teammates did you hear from and what did they say? Uh, quite a bit of the teammates, actually, yeah. Hawks wrote about the calls he received from other players in a memoir titled, yeah, you guessed it, Captain for Life. You said in your autobiography, what I really wanted was for Steve Sampson to fall flat on his face, but without the team yeah. doing the same. No, I just told him I appreciate your support and just go and play. All you can do is compete. There's nothing else in your control but what you can do on the field. You got to win. You have There's to. a part of you that's like, fight for me. Guys. Yeah, absolutely. You know I mean, I like, mean, fight for me, agitate for me. You've got to beg him. It's part of that transition where you're not part of the equation anymore. And... Um, you know, there's part of you that's gutted and you're sick to your stomach. What did Winalda say to you? Yeah, oh, I wish you were here, buddy. Well, Steve Sampson of today, please, can you shed some light? Basically, there were three strikes. One was the issue against Holland and the refusal initially to play a position that I wanted to play in. Steve's referring to an exhibition match against Holland in Miami, February 21st, 1998. Jeff Agus got injured. And I needed someone to play left back against Holland. And so I said, John, for this game, I need you to play as a left back. Okay, let me interject some soccer context for a second so we can get at the magnitude of what happened. Johnny Hawks was a born midfielder. He was the kind of player who tried to enforce his personality on every game, every opponent he played against. He liked to control proceedings, to define them, you know how in NFL football, everyone wants to be the quarterback? Well, that's essentially the kind of midfielder John Hawks was. Everyone watching thinks you're the most important player. And if you're a midfielder named Johnny Hawks, everyone watching also knows that you're People Magazine approved movie star beautiful. You kind of used to being, well, the centre of it all. And now Hawks was being asked to play as a left back. It's a fine position, don't get me wrong, it's essential just not one that's likely to make headlines. He then says to me, I did not come back from England to play as an outside back. I came back to play in the middle of midfield. And I looked at him and I said, so you're telling me that you can only play in one position where you want to play and that your national team coach is asking you to play this role for this game and you're refusing to do so. I'd never experienced that in my entire career. You know, a player telling a coach that he wasn't willing to play in a certain position. Well, I disagree. I thought that um, he kept saying I was trying to, I didn't embrace it. Um, and for me, I was like, look, I'm doing my best here. At times, it was his way or the highway. 
um, you know, he had taken on this persona that he was the man in charge. A day later, he apologized. And he ended up playing the role against Holland. So, fine. I put it, I put it behind me, and we moved on. So that was strike one. Strike two happened just a few days later in Brussels. Uh, he literally went out with, with two players to be nameless. Um, I don't think it, there's any value in naming the players. I do. It was Joe Max Moore. I know it went Alda too. Joe Max Moore, who was really stressed out about his birthday and the fact that he had a, a pulled hamstring. So we, we had a little birthday celebration. When Alda and Hawk say other players were with them. They wanted to go out on the town and, and enjoy themselves. And the night before the game, they did. It wasn't the day before the game, but uh, certainly, you know, it was a couple of days maybe prior to that. Without my permission and without my knowledge. And, and they went out and got drunk and, and, and tore, the, tore the, you know, Brussels up and came back to the hotel room and destroyed a hotel room. So, unfortunately, this drink that Joe Max had hit him a little harder than we thought. And he, he, he was going to start throwing up because I don't think he ate. So, Harks and I took Joe Max home and took care of him at 2 o'clock in the morning. And we're the ones that got in trouble. The rest of the team was out till six. Well, as I come down the next morning, the security guard pulls me aside and said, do you realize what happened the night before the game? And I said, no, because we have it on videotape. And we know for a fact that these are the three players came back and totally destroyed one of our rooms. The Federation ended up having to pay for that. And it ended up being one of the issues for me that led to my decision you know, about John. So we have two strikes, a stubborn player and a trashed hotel room. Strike three, just you wait and see. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. It's time to delve into that third strike. That final straw that got John Hawk booted off the US national team and changed his life. But to get there, we need to go forward in time. 12 years after this watershed moment, this truly mysterious moment in the history of American soccer. We have to explain what we're talking about. A lot of people are wondering what we're talking about. Okay. So you go first. You explain what the problem is. Well, the, the, Let me explain what we're listening to here. It's an episode of a soccer talk show, Fox Football Phone-In, that used to air on the Fox Soccer Channel. This one's from February 2010. One of the guys is the English host, Nick Webster. His co-host, that's Eric Wijnaldum. The two of them have been talking about a dust-up between two English footballers. That's not unusual. One of them, though, was the English captain, and he'd been accused of having an affair with the ex-girlfriend of a teammate. And that's a no-no in Premier League locker rooms. There's a question of character and integrity. And personally, as an, as an England fan, I don't want someone like that leading my national team because, well, you've had experience in this, Eric. Eric Wijnaldum leans in and casually drops this bomb. Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, to, 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 to callers or, or viewers right now, I, there, there's something that you need to know. Obviously, also wearing the number six 
for the U.S. There was all allegations that John Harsh had, had had an inappropriate relationship with my wife and was removed from the team for that reason. Uh, there's a lot of similarities in this situation right now. You can say um, and so for me, that was strike three, and I had to remove him from the team. Everyone I spoke with about how all this initially came to light, they remember the chronology, let's just say, a bit differently. Who told whom, what and when? It varies, memory to memory. I mean, this was 20 years ago. But what I do know for sure, and what everyone agrees on, is that after Steve heard about his captain allegedly having an affair with another player's wife, he sacked him. Did you know immediately that you would have to kick him off the team as soon as you heard it? Yes, because it, it was strike three. It was literally strike three for me, and there were lines that you do not cross over. I don't care if you have an affair with someone outside of the team's wife, but to have an affair that could negatively impact the perception and image of the national team and negatively impact the, the perception and image of a captain of a national team, you don't do it within the team. You don't have an affair with another player's wife within the team. And I felt that that was a line that, that was onerous uh, to have crossed over. Now, I kept that quiet for 12 years out of respect for the two families. You were silent for 12 years, which is crazy to me. But finally, the word came out via Winelda of his own accord. And then the world knew. And it changed for many people everything they thought. How was that for you emotionally? Vindication. Absolute total, complete relief and vindication. I got calls from Reuters, from Associated Press, from Sports Illustrated, from the Boston Globe, from the Dallas Morning News, to the New York Times. And I was finally able to tell the real story. And it was a relief though, because you knew that it changed the way you were seen. It was a relief for me because finally people heard the truth. Brace yourself for some more Fox football phoning. Here's Eric Winelder again. You, you, you spoke to Samson. Right. And, and Samson said, okay, I'm going to get rid of him. And you said, no, I want him well, on no, the team. I didn't say I wanted him on the team. I mean, what I did say is, look, he's still one of the best guys that we have in this country. And for that reason, I want to win. I want to have the best team on the field. That doesn't mean I'm going to hug him if he scores, but I, I'll tell you what, that's, that was my feeling then, and it still is. I mean, you know, I'm divorced and I've lost his number, but that's... Uh, <laughs> so, that, so let me ask you this, guys. So, so... John Hawks declined to discuss allegations about an affair. In an AP article from February 3rd, 2010, he said, I'm not going to rehash the things that have happened in the past. 1998 was devastating to me and my family. It was hard enough not to play in the World Cup, but it was even more difficult to go through that time period, the most difficult time period of my life. Did it cross your mind at the time that there might be other reasons? No. He never addressed any other reasons with you at no. all. He kept it purely football. Yeah. If he had, in that moment, apologized, I believe that I would have forgiven him. I would have fined him. And I would have told him, you've got to sort this out with Eric before the World Cup because he is a teammate. And I would have fined him and we, would have, we could have moved on. But he didn't apologize. He didn't say anything. 
Um, and so for me, that was strike three, and I had to remove him from the team. But if he would have so, apologized for it, you would have let him back on the team? 100%. What would that apology have meant, Steve? Everything. It would have, it would have meant I admit that I've made a mistake. I admit that 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 is behavior contrary to what it means to be in such an important position as captain of the United States national team. And just to have admitted that would have meant the world to me, would have meant and made all the difference to me, and quite frankly, would have allowed me to confront him on how we could heal the situation before the World Cup. But so, because he didn't, then I had to make the decision that I did. I was able to, to have a clear conscience after I had that conversation because I felt that I was doing the right thing. Either I'm a principled coach or I'm not a principled coach. Either I'm a, princi a principled human being or I'm not a principled human being. In that moment, Steve Sampson, the principled human being, made a choice. And Steve Sampson, the do-whatever-it-takes-to-win coach, he died. When I finally learned about, you know, years later, what was going on, once I found out, I said, that's why I didn't have John Harkes as part of my team? This is Alexi Lalas. I was angry. I was like, and, and maybe... Maybe I'm being flipped. Maybe I'm, I'm not being sensitive to, to Eric or anybody else. But I would have said, get over it, man. All right? Let's go, let's go win. And you guys can fight later. You can hate each other. I, I don't care. But I want him on my team because he's a good soccer player. And I just wanted to win. Uh, as a professional, I will forgive you a lot as long as you're going to help me win i think we all thought the same thing marcella balboa harksy was a good player harksy harksy deserved to be on that team knowing even what you know now uh, it doesn't matter it's sad but it's personal life it had nothing to do the way harksy was playing it had nothing to do with the chemistry of this team off the field that's something that that harksy and winalda had to work out but once you cross that line it goes away and we become a family again and we play because that's what we have to do. That's the competitive we have. We get our job done and we do it well. You see, professional footballers, they're elite athletes. And the way they think, the way they behave, the code they live their lives by, it's just different to those of us who are mere civilians. This is Eric Winelda. I thought that if I can handle it, Steve should have been able to handle it. And he, to this day, I think that... that Ripping John off that team was ripping the heart out of our team. Did, did you ask Steve Sampson to re reinstate John? Yes, Hart? twice. Twice. In San Diego uh, and on the phone. And what did he say? Um, taking this to the grave. Can't do it. I said, that's a mistake. I remember saying to Steve, he's still one of the best players in the country. He, I don't care what he's done. He needs to be on this team. Mm, no, I don't recall those, those phone calls. I do recall. I do recall that he was he wasn't happy uh, with the decision, but he didn't know at the time, you know, exactly why uh, the main reason as to why I made the decision. And that was probably one of the most challenging things for me 
was, was that Eric was also in denial, but it was the absolute truth because they were best friends. And the last thing that I wanted to do was to tell Eric that his best friend was having an affair with his wife and I wasn't going to do it. And I kept it quiet. When Elder, though, he swears he knew exactly what was going on. There was no denial, just disagreement. Was it a situation where you were like so angry that you couldn't be in the same no, locker room no, as, look, as I, John? No, never. I think I have a unique understanding of that man. And, and yeah, okay, so you've learned a lesson about someone's character. You've learned a lesson about, but that the game always needs to be paramount. You're, you're representing your country. We don't have time for that. And in a way, when your life is crashing off the field, this football, the football field. saves you. And, 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 and anybody that's ever um, gone through something really sometimes horrific, we've seen, you know, I've had teammates that have lost their wife. I've had teammates that have lost a child. I've, I've, to, to be a teammate in those moments, what you, what you realize is the game truly is a great escape. And when you're playing the game, you, you're able to compartmentalize to a certain extent. And some of the, the issues that are going on in your life go away because you get to enjoy the game at a whole new level. And it, it, it is such a great, a beautiful distraction. They might be a flawed individual for the other, you know, 22 and a half hours out of the, out of the day. Those 90 minutes matter. It's all about the 90 minutes. In, in football, yeah. Have you spoken to Steve Sampson? Yeah, every once in a while. I've seen him a few times. I got to see him uh, when he was uh, coaching at San Luis Obispo. Um, and I was just there yesterday. What did he say when you asked him if he still thinks about it? All the time. Yeah, I think we all do. I did ask Steve Sampson if, back in March 1998, three months before the World Cup, if he ever wavered at all in his decision. Did he ever give it a second thought? He said once, only once, when he talked to his wife about it. Well, I said, I've got this, this massive predicament on my hand and I'm weighing my options. And I explained to her what my options were. And she says, well, don't, don't, don't let John go because it will come back to haunt you. What life lesson do you draw from it? That to be a principled man always comes with consequences. You heard it here first. With principles come consequences, and with consequences comes an American fiasco. American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botine, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jameson York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldrich, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. This episode included audio from 
ITV, ESPN, and Fox. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. This is Rog. One quick favor. If you enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to your friends, especially those that are just starting to fall in love with the sport during the World Cup. It's guaranteed, I promise you, to put them over the top. Courage.